on Mount Sinai. These ten words, as we've talked about, are intended to shape a people who have only known how to live in bondage. These words are a guide, our guide as well, as a people who have been rescued by grace, but do not know how to live out its freedom. And it's important we understand it, again, as a means of living out of grace. That is the gift of the law of these words. As we start always, let us re recite together the Ten Commandments. Beloved, what are the Ten Commandments? I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Honor your father and mother. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet. Beloved, what is the seventh commandment? You shall not commit adultery. What does this commandment mean? What God has joined together, let no one separate. Jesus said, anyone who looks at another person lustfully has already committed adultery with that person in his heart. We love God by protecting the covenant relationships he has allowed or guided into existence. We will honor God with our mind, body, and soul. The first part of the law is this great commandment, that we love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our mind, and with all our strength. The second part of the law flows out of our understanding of the first. We must love our neighbors as ourselves. Beloved, this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As we draw near the end of the list, contrary to what we might expect, these commandments do not get easier or simpler for us to comprehend. Quite the opposite, actually, as these latter words challenge us to look deeper within ourselves. They dare us to wrestle with things that, frankly, we don't normally talk about, especially in church. Take this word, this week's word, for instance, the seventh. Two Hebrew words again, just two, that roughly translated equate to no adultery. When's the last time you heard a really good sermon on extramarital affairs? <laughs> When's the last time that you heard a sermon on love, sex, or marriage? There's not a lot of requests for these kind of sermons either. I don't have people coming up as a pastor tapping me on the shoulder and saying, you know, we need a really good sermon on adultery. And yet, this is telling. This is telling in light of the fact of how much adultery plagues our society today. I mean, we can be honest, I hope, at church. Doesn't it seem that not a day goes by where we find some government official caught breaking his or her marital vows? The tabloid headlines, if you go to the grocery store, anywhere, tabloid headlines, they, they say, I don't read them. I don't read in beyond the headlines that I see, but they always seem to be the same. Who cheated on who? The names change, but the headlines seems always to be the same. And, and even more disturbing and more shocking for us is that there seems to be, with each passing year, less and less immunity to the snare of infidelity within the Christian community. Many of us, if we had the, the inclination, could share 
tragically, stories of local and national pastors, missionaries, other figures who have fallen victim to the plague of adultery. I think, though, in the midst of this, what's more disturbing for me more and more, both as a husband and as a father, let alone as a pastor, what's more disturbing is the growing cultural acceptance and more than this, encouragement of adultery. Movies, TV shows, novels romanticize having an affair. Magazines, bloggers, self-help gurus even argue more and more today for the marital benefits of adultery. And if you think I'm exaggerating that I'm just you know, pulling random examples, consider this excerpt from the New York Times on June 30th of this year. An article entitled, Married with Infidelities, quoting one of the leading sex help gurus that's out there. He says, treating monogamy rather than honesty or humor or joy as the main indicator of, of a successful marriage gives people unrealistic expectations of themselves and their partners. If the couple cannot fulfill all of each other's desires, then it may be advisable to decide to go outside the bounds of marriage if that's what it takes to make the marriage work. I'll push further. I'll push further as we see more and more that the practice of monogamy apparently is giving way to just being monogamish. Monogamish. It's a couple of years ago, not too many, that I came across something that I, I literally thought it was made up. Ashley Madison. Ashley Madison is a social networking site for a particular clientele. And just a few years back, this organization put up a billboard in Times Square, New York City, that featured a fuzzy image of an open hotel room door with a couple embracing inside. On the door of the hotel room was a more visible sign that shared the advertising slogan of the company. It read, life is short, have an affair. So controversial was this billboard when it was put up that it was taken down only three days after it went up. Ironically, by the way, on July 24th. <laughs> now, the interesting thing is, while the billboard was too scandalous to look at, what Ashley Madison was promoting apparently was not. Since the company started in 2002, they have already have 2.5 million members. 2.5 million members. All it takes is $249 to sign up, and it's fully refundable, by the way, if they can't help you have an affair within three months. I'm not making this up. Now, in hearing some of these things, the stereotypical perspective of the church is that given this seventh word and the reality that we see around us, that the church tends to say, you see, the problem is sex. This is often the default position of the church. The problem is sex. Adultery, it's been argued, is often and is the result of the greater temptation, the increased sexual desire, the greater opportunity. It's the pill's fault. It's because of abortion. Sex is the problem. And beloved, what I want to start right from the outset is suggesting to you that the seventh word invites us to stop fixating on the symptoms 
and instead to engage the real problem. When it comes to adultery, the problem is not sex. Our confusion about adultery stems from our failure to understand or appreciate the sacredness of love, sex, and marriage. Now, before I go further, I want to take a, a brief pause and offer a word to those who are present this morning who are single for whatever reason. Because you might be thinking right now, man, I came to church this Sunday. <laughs> Great. Whether or not you are married, whether or not marriage is in your future, I want you to hear from me and me quoting the word of God that there is nothing in your lives, if you are single, less valuable or less complete just because you are not married. And it's important for you to hear this because culturally and frankly often in the church, we make people who are single feel that way. But biblically, there is nothing less valuable or less complete in your life before the living God if you are not married. Marriage is a gift from God. Yes, it is. But contrary to how we often speak and behave, culturally and especially within the church, marriage is not the means by which one is completed before God or the means by which one becomes complete within the community. All persons, all, are free to seek the abundant life that can only be found in the person of Jesus Christ. And point of fact, if you really want to step back before we go on, biblically, we're actually called to singleness and celibacy first. Our first love, our true love, is Jesus Christ. Jesus was single. Paul was single. Paul, in fact, writes that the burden is not on single people, but on married people. Paul says that the church grows and lives not primarily by marriage and family. Hear this, church. The church grows and lives not primarily by marriage and family. It's a great way to grow the church, but it's not primarily how God intended for the church to grow and live. Not by marriage and family. God intended the church to primarily grow by witness and conversion. By witness and conversion. By adoption into the family. What Paul writes is that marriage is a calling. So if you're single, you may not be married or ever choose to get married. Marriage is a calling. Paul goes right out and puts it out there very bluntly and says, look, marriage is a calling for those who struggle in the midst of the temptations, the distortions of sex and love. Marriage is a calling to better or more easily live out our faith in Christ in the midst of those struggles. So, if you're here this morning as someone who's single for whatever reason, you still have a, an interest in hearing what's being shared for two reasons. One, at some point you may wish to be married. God may lead you into marriage again. But more importantly, more significantly for us together as a community, you're married to Christ, as we all are. And we also need everyone in the community to help us to hold together a proper understanding, a healthy understanding of love, sex, and marriage. Marriage is a calling. Marriage is a calling, and understanding marriage is a calling begins by understanding what love is. And I think I've got a good group in this room that you'll remember the song, Love is a Many Splendored Thing. That song has fallen out of fashion, but those who remember, that song contains a truth that our understanding of love begins by understanding that it's multidimensional. 
We often make it one or two-dimensional, and this morning we're going to see that love is a many-splendored thing, multi-dimensional. The first dimension of love that we need to wrestle with and understand as the Bible draws us through is this understanding that the first dimension of love is, begins with a basic sexual urge. It's the same kind of urge that we share with the animals. It's been called libido. Libido love is that desire, that urge for self-fulfillment, to want to connect, to want to mate with someone, to abandon oneself to another person. It's a surging power. It's a, it's a chasing after ecstasy that suddenly comes on us at adolescence and we, we don't, it just shocks us. But this initial urge, this libido love, this surging power is merely scratching the surface in terms of love. Because desire, the fulfillment of a desire, can be over as quickly as it gets started. And it usually is. We have desires about lots of things. Think about food. I'm hungry, I eat, I'm not hungry anymore. And oftentimes we can confuse this initial sexual urge, this first dimension of love as being it. And yet if this happens, we are engaging in a very shallow, almost transparent form of love. It's important we acknowledge this because the, the truth is, despite what we've often been taught or proclaimed in the church, sexual desire is not itself evil or dirty or wrong. But what we want to profess, what God's word gives us, is that sex for humans cannot, must not be a mere animal reaction, a pure physical sensation. If that's all that sex is, if that's all that we equate love with, the fulfillment of desire, then what happens is our identity becomes defined by sexual expression and fulfillment. And that's part of what we see being reflected in our world, where it's all about sex. Everything about us is defined by our sexuality, and that's not what God intended. Because when this happens, when sex is all there is, sex at this level, love becomes transactional. Love becomes egocentric. We become consumers. We treat something that is far different than food like food. Love becomes fickle and shallow. It's about pleasure for pleasure's sake. And frankly, anyone will do. If the spark of sex gets mistaken for the fire of love, we will never be satisfied. I mean... I want you to, to stop and think for a second, not to, to bash, but just to stop and think. Many of us have been around, well, we've all been around long enough to experience what we call the sexual revolution. Think about the sexual revolution for a moment. For all of the bravado, for all of the freedom that came through the sexual revolution, why hasn't it solved our problems? Why hasn't the lowering of our inhibitions why hasn't the availability of contraceptives, why hasn't the cultural acceptance of sex outside of marriage fulfilled all our desires? Shouldn't love be richer if we're more free? Shouldn't love be more fulfilling, even more satisfying, since we've gotten rid of all those things that were weighing us down and keeping us in bondage? And yet, in the midst of all of our sexual freedom, liberation, revolution, we live perhaps more so than at any other time in an age where love is more frustrating. Love is more confusing. Love is more fleeting and disappointing than ever. Beloved, what this draws out for us is sex is not the issue. Love is the issue. Love is the focus. Because there's more to sex than desire. And there's more to love than sex. And that's why hopefully most of us, 
And more and more, we have generations that may not get past this first dimension, but hopefully, eventually, we discover that libido love usually leads to another dimension of love, a dimension of love that was once called eros, or if you will, what we would call romantic love. Romantic love transcends sexual desire. Romantic love transcends sexual desire because desire becomes wedded to attraction. We want to be with another person, not because of their glands or ours. We want to be with another person because we notice and we are drawn to the beauty and loveliness of that person. Now, this is a step up. It's another dimension. But in our day and age, because of the heat, because of the glow of romance that's part of Eros, we tend to make this the gold standard of love. This has become the gold standard of love. This is the dimension of love, this second dimension, that has become our modern basis for marriage and, frankly, divorce. More and more couples come to me, more and more couples I interact with, maybe in your circles too, who want to get married. Why? Because we fell in love. Because we fell in love and I need, I want to be with that person. But is it really the right time? Oh, no, it doesn't matter. We love each other. We have to be together. This is the gold standard, the reason for getting married in our modern age, but also the reason, frankly, more and more for getting divorced. It's over. We're done. We've, we've gotten lawyers. Why? Because the love is gone. I was in love, but I'm not in love anymore. The thrill, the attraction is gone. You know, it's not the way it used to be. It's not the way it used to be. So, you know, we're done. What this draws out, how this second dimension has become the gold standard for both marriage and divorce, interestingly enough, more and more, it, what it demonstrates is as great as romantic love is, as great as it is, it still, when you step back, is really nothing more than a personalized libido. It's just attraction being wedded with desire, and therefore, romantic love can be just as fickle and just as fleeting. Many people in here can attest by experience that the heat of romance may bring two people together in marriage, but it takes more, a different dimension of love to hold them together throughout a lifetime. I mean, the libido cools off. Romance, the emotions of romance are not as spontaneous or as powerful as they are at the beginning. It's not to say that for those who get married that we're not, uh, have, don't have desire for our spouse or aren't attracted to them, but these things can change. And, 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 and love needs to be more than this. And married couples that go the distance know this. They experience this third dimension of love, which is known as philia. Philia love, the love of friendship. While libido and eros Sexual desire and romantic love are fragile. Filial love is the product of time, experience, and testing. While such love can begin as desire and attraction for another person, it can become something more in the face of life's challenges and disappointments. In the face of all the things we go through together and choose to go through together. Such love can become a matter of loyalty, constancy, fidelity. I wish we had time because some of you could share some very, very powerful stories of this face of love. 
This is the kind of love we witness in aged couples. This is the kind of love that we witness in couples whose closeness and intimacy and trust have deepened well beyond the flirtations and passions of their youth. It's the kind of love that can be expressed simply through a smile, the twinkle of an eye or the grabbing and holding of another person's hand. This is powerful. And it's a love that, frankly, is an endangered species more and more. Yet as great as this love is, as great as this dimension of love is, it too can become vulnerable. It too can become vulnerable to the damage and neglect that are part of our brokenness as human beings. I mean, after all, when we talk about the love of friendship, friends as we know, some of us know tragically, friends can grow apart. Friends in marriage can grow apart. We can lose some of the connection in our relationship. Even the best of friends can have a falling out sometimes. And when that falling out comes, even when they come back together, it's just not the same. This philia, this love of friendship, is the best that we humans can do when we're left to our own devices. It's three-dimensional love, and that's pretty good. But the good news, biblically, the good news of the gospel is that our love has four dimensions. This is not the final dimension of love that's available to us. There is a love that exists that transcends the brokenness of our lives. There is a love that exists that transcends the betrayals of this world, the disappointments. It's the kind of love that is supernatural. It's the kind of love that causes our eyes to get big and our hearts to sink in our chests and our bodies to tremble. It's the kind of love that makes something possible that seems humanly impossible. It's the kind of love that makes forgiveness of the unforgivable possible. It's the kind of love that the writers of the Bible called agape love. And agape love is a different dimension of love. It's unselfish love. It's self-sacrificing love. It's suffering love. Agape love isn't self-obsessed. Agape love isn't driven by fear. Agape love is focused on the other person. Agape love doesn't say, I can only love you if you love me. Agape love says, shockingly, I will love you for your own sake. And therefore, I will love you no matter what. Agape love is eternal because it's not based on time. It's unconditional because it's not based on the other person. This is the kind of love that 1 Corinthians 13, that Paul writes about when he describes love. This is the kind of love that is willing to love the other person, to patiently endure, to always protect, even when that other person makes that task seem hopeless. This kind of love, as Paul writes in that 13th chapter of Corinthians, perseveres because this kind of love is divine. It is the love of God that we come to experience and to know personally in Jesus Christ. This kind of love is the love that the world hungers for that the, the world writes about in songs and in fairy tales and points to wistfully, mocks at times because it just is so fanciful it can't possibly be true. But this is the kind of love that is not only true, it is here and now among us in Christ. But beloved, all of these dimensions of love, to, to experience the four dimensions of love, libido, 
The desire for self-fulfillment all the way to agape, the fulfillment of completely giving oneself to another person without condition, can only be revealed, can only be experienced, can only be appreciated, God says, in marriage. We've got it all wrong. Even in the church, we've got it all wrong. We think that true love is the cause, the reason for marriage. We're getting married because we love each other. You're getting married. Do you love each other? We think that true love is the reason, the cause for marriage. But biblically, God says something different. God says that true love, four-dimensional love, is the fruit, the result of marriage. The result of faithful commitment to each other. We don't get married because we love each other. We get married because we are committing to love each other. Love is more than a feeling. Love is a decision, a journey, a promise. That's why, for those who still use them, we have the traditional vows. In sickness and in health, for richer or for poorer, this four-dimensional love can only exist in the context of an exclusive, lifelong commitment of trust. Because it's only in this kind of exclusivity, it's only in this kind of commitment that we can tell the truth. That we can be who we truly are. That we can risk that vulnerability. That that kind of intimacy is not only possible, but safe. Now this is contrary to the, to the ways of this world. The ways of this world argue more and more something different. There's a movie that's come out that's literally was already made a couple of months ago. A couple of months ago it was called No Strings Attached. It's coming out now and it's Friends with Benefits. This is the logic of the world in which we live in. No strings attached, friends with benefits. And it sounds great in theory. But such uncertainty, such freedom without commitment will to any degree but finally, to an ultimate degree, will lead to lying. Lying is protective. And when we are free, but without commitment, we lie to protect ourselves. And lying as a means of protecting ourselves undermines commitment. Because lying supersedes commitment. The lie becomes all that holds us together with that other person. It's a cheap foundation, a quick and easy foundation that degrades quickly and leaves regret and shame in its wake. The world argues differently, but we always see the intensity of the encounter, but not the morning after. And the reality that this is true is that we live in a world in the midst of love that is more and more jaded and cynical. Look to our young people, look to our young people, how jaded and cynical they are in their understanding of love. And what has happened in our world, we speak even in our songs, that love, in our jadedness and our cynicism, love is not a promise anymore, love is a game. And in the game of love, the argument goes, it doesn't matter what I do, as long as no one gets hurt. A little adultery's a good thing for your marriage, as long as no one gets hurt. But beloved, when it comes to love, what God is showing us through this seventh word, screaming, whispering to us, is that when we assert our right to do whatever we please, we ignore the reality that love without commitment does hurt people. 
It hurts people badly. Adultery, contrary to what we often say politically or even in social conversations, adultery is not a private sin. This is why it's part of God's Ten Commandments. We've lost this. We don't talk about this in church because we've convinced ourselves that sex, love, and marriage are private things. And God is screaming through the seventh word that love, sex, and marriage are not private. They are public. Adultery is not a private sin. It only takes two people. But the consequences are very, very public. The fallout of of infidelity has a rippling effect. It sends shockwaves that affect the spouses, the children, the family, the friends, even the acquaintances. And oftentimes those shock, the shock and awe of adultery lasts for generations. Some of us exist today still bearing the scars, the wounds in our own families from something that is supposedly private. The psychological cost of betrayal, rejection and abandonment is staggering. Many people think that it's this breakdown within our understanding of society that's, that's leading to increased anger, increased depression and bitterness, increased insecurity, increased fear and emotional paralysis because everyone is afraid that they're going to be betrayed. Everyone is afraid that they're going to get cheated. Everyone is afraid that it's good but not good enough. Everyone is afraid that it's I'm with you until I'm not with you anymore. That love is fleeting. We've got to remember again that this this word is for us as believers. It's not for non-believers. This word is for us who know this God. And as believers, in hearing the seventh word, we're missing the boat, my, my brothers and sisters in Christ. Faithfulness, lifelong committed marriages in which the partners not only say, but live into the promise of love envisioned until death do us part have the opportunity to mirror something to the world that is divine. Such relationships can reflect and help us to understand the faithfulness that God engages us throughout our lives. Again, we get it backwards in the church. For Christians, marriage is not primarily about the pleasure the mutual pleasure of the couple. We need to start talking about this in the church. We don't encourage our children to get married primarily for their mutual pleasure. As followers of Christ, marriage exists primarily for the revealing of God's divine love to the world. Marriage exists for revealing God's divine love to the world. When the world wants to know who is this God, what is this God, where is this God, we can point to the reality of Christian marriage. Christian marriage reveals God's love to the world, and Christian marriage is for the building up of the community, all in the community. Marriage is intended, if you will, as a living metaphor of God's love and commitment to us. And here in Exodus, we see this from the start. It'll only continue as the story goes on that Israel is intended, God will be very clear, as a model, a reflection to the nations of God's character. That is why Israel exists, and part of that character is to reveal to the nations God's love. The love of God is a covenant love. It's unconditional and everlasting, as God will repeat to the people, and the people will repeat back to God. God's love and the promises that come with it are not contingent on the reciprocity, not contingent on the faithfulness of Israel. As we will see in most striking terms as we go through the whole of the Old Testament. God will not break his word or betray his people. No matter how much they may whore themselves before the rest of the world. 
Therefore, as God's people, Israel is beckoned, encouraged to live the same way, to live and reflect the faithfulness and loyalty that God showers upon her. Anything less, God protests, is not just a violation of his guidelines for life. Anything less is so heartbreaking because it is misrepresenting who God truly is to the world. Perhaps the most powerful example of this, and given that this individual, David, was considered a man after God's own heart, it makes it all the more ironic. In Psalm 51, David reflects on committing adultery, not following this prescription of God, committing adultery with another man's wife, Bathsheba. If you're familiar with this story, David is so fixated, so distorted in his understanding of love, sex, and marriage that David actually gets Bathsheba pregnant and when he gets her pregnant, he goes so far in, the, in the, just the distortion, the frustration that he's experiencing to cover up what he has done that he has Bathsheba's husband Uriah killed. In Psalm 51, David reflects back on all that he has done and he prays against you, You only have I sinned. Against you, you only have I sinned. Is David praying that prayer to Uriah? No. He's praying that prayer to God because he understands that his infidelity, his adultery, is an act of disloyalty to God. David's not denying that he's wronged Bathsheba. He clearly dishonored her. David doesn't deny that he betrayed Uriah. He had But what David is doing here in this prayer in Psalm 51 is affirming that adultery, his adultery, has misrepresented the loving character of God. And it's not just with David. This is why God uses this metaphor for marriage in describing his relationship with Israel. When the prophets call out Israel for being off the mark or out of sync, they describe the nation again and again as being adulterous. And it continues beyond Israel into the body of Christ. Paul, in Ephesians, in the fifth chapter of that letter, explicitly tells us that our faithfulness in marriage is a picture of the union that exists between Jesus Christ and his church. Covenant love, born of a husband and wife, born of loyalty, faithfulness, dependability, passionate service, mirrors, mirrors, gives the world something to see, to, to, to grasp its hands around, to understand the submission, the commitment of Christ's love for all the world. The sacrament of baptism, we engaged in that, that sacrament last week together in this service. The sacrament of baptism is about each of us being sealed in that covenant love of God. And in many ways, it's very much like the marriage covenant. The reason why we're baptized only once in life, you ever asked yourself, why are we only baptized once in life? We always can say, well, there's only one baptism, but the Bible says that. Why are we only baptized once in life and not many times? Because no matter how much we slip and slide within that relationship, God's commitment and fidelity are sworn and sealed the first time. We aren't baptized again because we don't have to be, because God's love is unconditional. God's love for us is eternal. Marriage is intended to reflect that kind of love and fidelity. Have you ever thought about this? Have you ever ever stepped back and said and asked yourself to imagine a world without marriage? 
Imagine a world without marriage. Imagine a world without marriage. What would be our basis for defining love? What would be our basis for defining that permanent, complete love that comes from the commitment of two people? What would be our basis for understanding, describing that redemptive, healing love that endures through the willingness of two people to embrace and forgive each other despite their flaws? Where would the model, the, the, the conceptual understanding of that kind of love come from if there was no such thing as marriage? What experience, what structure would anchor our knowledge or belief in this kind of love? What would be our basis of family? How would we understand and communicate parental love to our children? How would we expect our children to grasp and embrace the full measure and faithfulness of God's love if adultery was the rule and not the exception? Beloved, our distorted understanding of sex, love, and marriage is creating a throwaway society around us. Intimate, personal relationships are being routinely discarded for more disposable relationships. Getting a divorce is becoming just as common as getting married. Does that bother anybody? We find ourselves surprised. We find ourselves surprised even in the Christian community when a couple actually makes it. Think about that. We find ourselves actually surprised when a couple actually makes it. In fact, we consider it a novelty. Is that not disturbing? We look around and a broken home is not the exception anymore. A broken home is the norm. As our children have to learn to live as part of more than one family, in more than one house. And while may, this may be the reality that some of us have to live with, and not to deny that that's a reality for many of us, it's a different thing as we begin to tell ourselves that it's better this way for our kids. Really? And in the midst of all of this, what I've just said, competing of voices around us protest that you see, there it is again, the church, you Christians, that what, it, what we're doing right now is we're disdaining, we're demeaning, we're disapproving. It just goes to show how closed off we are, how little appreciation we truly have for sex, love, and marriage. Beloved, this seventh word says the opposite is true. We need to talk and clarify what God means by sex, love, and marriage because we value these things so highly. We profess that love, sex, and marriage are some of God's most precious gifts, holding the key to God's very own character, his unconditional and unfailing love. God created, we believe, we need to say love, sex, and marriage. All three were his idea and gift from the very beginning, from the opening pages of Genesis. But here in Exodus, what we discover, what is reinforced is that God designed this trio, this trinity, if you will, to be experienced and enjoyed within the context of marriage. Because the fullness of our love, in all four of its dimensions, the most beautiful expression of our desire, attraction, friendship, and devotion for another person can only be appreciated within the context of commitment. Intimacy belongs not just with the promise, but the commitment to love. The integrity of the home and family depend on husband and wives being able to trust each other. A society filled with adultery is a society filled with unfaithfulness. 
And such a society will fall apart because such a society misrepresents the Lord God to the nations. And even more significantly, such a society distorts the gifts of God and makes them into idols. We have to be careful in looking at the whole of the commandments that we do not make love, sex, and marriage into idols. And so, beloved, this morning I have a strong word for all of us. A strong word that I would be remiss if I didn't go here. And I know for some of you, this is going to prick you. For some of you, this is going to tick you off. But it's time this morning, in the context of this seventh word, to take stock and come clean. We need to lay our infidelities at the feet of Jesus Christ. Some of us here today, some of us here today are engaged in adultery right now. Others of us this morning are being tempted. Beloved, I ask you in the privacy of your own heart, and yet in the same time, God is in that space. Where is the siren song of adultery luring you, tempting you, snaring you? Is it literally another man or woman in your life beyond your spouse? Is it pornography? Is it addiction to a fantasy life? The life that you live in front of everyone else, but the fantasy life that you indulge inside your head? Is it through escaping? Escaping the reality, the commitment of your life by a self-indulgent lifestyle? Is it your obsession with work? Is it your obsession with success, power, and status, which is your means of infidelity? You may think I'm blowing open the doors way beyond what we've discussed, but as we recited when we talked about the seventh commandment, Jesus made it clear that there are lots of ways to commit adultery. That infidelity begins in the mind and the heart long before the rest of the body gets involved. Beloved, what infidelities do we need to lay before the feet of Christ this morning? This invitation, this calling to all of us is not about badgering or embarrassing you. I'm not trying to get us to squirm in our seats this morning. I'm not just saying this for effect. This is a call, an invitation to be free. It's an invitation to face the lie and know the truth, to open our minds to a stronger, richer, and eternal understanding of commitment, to open our hearts, our hard, stone-cold hearts for many of us, many of our hearts that have died in certain places, to open up our hearts to a deeper, more intimate, and divine expression of love. The same Jesus who warned us that adultery, there are lots of ways to commit it, that it begins in the mind and the heart long before the body gets involved, is the same Jesus who said to the woman who was caught in adultery. Has no one condemned you? Has no one condemned you? Then neither do I. But go and sin no more. Be free of the lie. Beloved, this seventh word, you shall not commit adultery, is a word that calls us to truly care about the people we say we love. Not to use them, not to exploit them, not to ignore them, not to patronize them, not to manipulate them for the sake of our own satisfaction. We are called through this word to love the people that God has brought into our lives by committing our lives to them, by entrusting our futures to them, by sharing ourselves with them so that both we and they can grow into the fully agape loving people that God intends for us to be. The faithfulness in our relationships 
expressed in both commitment and forgiveness, reveals God's love in Christ, reveals God's dependability, his unchanging and unflinching loyalty to us and all the world. But this kind of love, this four-dimensional true love, is not a human possibility. We need the grace and help of God. We can't practice such fidelity, such faithfulness. We can't extend such forgiveness, experience such intimacy in our own strength. That is why in Christian marriage we come before the living God and declare our vows because we invoke God to be a part of our marriages. So beloved, if you have forgotten those vows, if you never came and did them before the living God, whatever your situation, know that God desires to be with you. Come this morning bearing your own wounded soul so that you might experience the healing power of forgiveness, so that you might experience the promise of redemption, so that you might taste for the very first time in your life the kind of love that you didn't even think was possible. Receive anew the word of this God who in Christ assures us that our first love will never betray us or forsake us no matter how unfaithful we've been. Amen?